hands. Our apologies for that. Well, hands up whoever has heard a sermon on the Book of Lamentations. Whoever's heard a sermon on the whole series of the Book of Lamentations? No one. Not one person in this whole room has heard a sermon on Lamentations. I certainly haven't. Oh, sorry, a sermon series through the whole book. I certainly haven't, and nor have I done one before. I think there are some good reasons for this. Starting with what Holly just read out to us. Um, firstly, there are 66 books in the Bible, and it would take a couple of lifetimes to preach through the whole Bible, so naturally there's going to be parts that are missed. Um, but there are other reasons that lamentation specifically might be omitted. Uh, we've all probably heard many sermons on the parable, parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the good Samaritan, and certainly we've heard many messages on the Christmas and the Easter texts. So we have favourites that we return to regularly, and we have seasons that draw us to some specific passages and themes that are central to the Gospel. But when it comes to a book like Lamentations, there are plenty of reasons, believe me, to find another part of the Bible that's more attractive or compelling to devote time to. After all, the title, Lamentations, sounds depressing enough. And that's before you read it as you just found out, which confirms just how depressing it really is. At least Job had interesting characters and a happy ending to that story. And Lamentations, it's not about the creation story and it doesn't involve any of the core characters in the Old Testament who are central to Israel or in the line that leads to Jesus. So there's another reason it might get missed. The fact is, the reality is that most of us will only have bumped into these five chapters of the book that make up Lamentations if you're in a Bible study group and Lamentations is in the curriculum or perhaps you've come through it personally as you read through the Bible, perhaps reading through the Bible in a year and you have this depressing period where you go through these five chapters. The most likely way that you've bumped into Lamentations, I'm going to guess, is that you've read its three most quoted verses from chapter 3, which are some people's favourite verses. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Great verses that we will get to in a couple of weeks. So why are we doing Lamentations? After all, there are 65 other books in the Bible. Lamentations sounds and is rather depressing. Well, as I reflected on it, there are two clear reasons why we're in Lamentations, but no doubt there are others that the Lord knows about. Because when you open the Word and you preach it, the Word goes far wider and deeper than anything I might intend. The Lord knows what He's up to, and when His Word is open, it goes forward. The writer of Hebrews 4 reminds us of this. For the word of God is, sharp, is, active and is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So just by opening this book, God's going to do amazing things that I haven't planned and it's a great opportunity uh, to see that happen. 
But as I thought about it, why are we opening Lamentations? Well, the first reason is the simple one, is that I just felt pulled towards it. I've never preached it, and I just felt pulled uh, as a pastor in this church to move towards this book. That's the first one, and the Lord knows what that's about and what will come out of it. I have no agenda. I don't know this book well, although I'm coming to know it well. But going a little deeper and unpacking why God might be pulling me into this book um, might help us. You see... For the last two years as a church, we've been travelling through the Gospel of Matthew. We slowly worked our way through all 28 chapters. And as we came towards the end, I started pondering and praying about what would be the next book that we would open and how we would move forward. And people even started asking, what's the next book? What are you thinking about? And people would put in some requests. Um, and I even had some requests for not, tac not commonly tackled books from the Old Testament. When we're in Matthew... I noticed something about how we as Christians tackle Jesus' crucifixion. You might remember that we went through the Passion na um, narrative in spring last year and it took about six weeks. We normally open those texts in Easter, in Holy Week, and we rush through them on Good Friday, maybe Monday, Thursday, and then we enjoy our hot cross buns and can't wait for Easter Sunday when it all gets happy again. And I saw that we as, as Christians in the Protestant tradition don't hold tragedy and trauma well. Not just us as a church, but the wider movement of Christianity um, and particularly perhaps evangelicalism, which has an emphasis on sharing the good news. We like good news more. Fair enough. But what happens when life deals tough cards to people? Are we prepared as a result of this when we've never actually dwelt with the toughest stuff that the Bible does expose us to. The sad reality is that at a time when we might be in our great need for comfort, many people also have a burden of a faith crisis put on top of that because of their pain with questions that strike them like, where was God? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why won't God heal? Where is the justice? And at the very moment we should be leaning into God's comfort we have this crisis going on at another level. And I think it might be because we don't talk enough about the tough stuff of life and faith. We don't camp there for any prolonged period. The most we get is a day on Good Friday, racing towards, with hindsight, what we know is coming on Easter Sunday. We keep away from the bad stories, and the result is that our faith can tend to be only built on the good things. Whereas the Christian faith is built on the whole canon and the whole wisdom of God that's found in the Bible, which includes passages and books like Lamentations. God has reasons for that, which we should attend to. And besides, Lent started this week, which is meant to help us prepare for the events of the cross. The Christian story has built within it deep capacity for injustice and pain and trauma. And you can only have resurrection if you have death. That's part of our message. But further, as I thought just pastorally about us here in Melbourne and what we've all endured over the last few years with lockdowns and the pandemic, I realised that not many people have a well-developed capacity or theology in modern life for grief and trauma. And that's because we're protected from lots of it. Most of us do live a long life and encounter death rarely. 
Most of us expect to live a long life and die in old age. Indeed, existentially, I think that is a key reason why many people in our society put off their angst and decisions about life and meaning and eternity for another day because they can put it off for another day. So they do. However, sometimes tragedy does happen. Some of us have experienced this personally and been close to it. And if this happens, by and large, there are not that many other people who can walk with us and walk with you, carrying their own trauma and tragedy and assisting yours in your grief as they bring presence and comfort. When I led a theological college, uh, we had a chaplain who was a remarkable lady called Glenis. She, there were very few people I've ever met who had pastoral skills like Glenis uh, had. But that's not surprising because Glenis was a pastoral care worker who worked with very special kids for over a decade, a hospice that provides palliative care for children and their families. And the Glenises of this world, with her built-in faith and wisdom, are rare. The unexpected death of a loved one is an important area we need to bring care and understanding and sympathy and practice in. As you will see, Lamentations does not offer trite and simplistic answers. You won't find Christian bumper sticker theology in this book because it's from people who have suffered great tragedy and are living in the ongoing trauma that only surfaces after something horrible has happened. Now, the tragic death of a loved one is not the only domain of grief and loss that Lamentations will touch upon. This is a book that names a broad variety of human suffering, conditions, cruelty and injustice and helps us process how we can understand and approach these experiences biblically, theologically and honestly. Trauma surfaces after, da after damaging events that come from childhood, school, family, life, work, church, relationships, violence, abuse, crime moral injury, it's a long, hard and damaging list. And no two people respond to these things in the same way. Trauma can also lie dormant for years and then surface surprisingly, as if by surprise. It can also scream for action through your body or through your mind and through physical and mental symptoms, which we can often ignore or suppress at great cost. I'm reminded of an excellent book that I've read by, um, by a, a, one of the original people who uncovered the reality of trauma on our physical bodies. It's called The Body Keeps the Score, because it does. The writer of Lamentations no doubt had many of these experiences. This is a book for those who are devastated or have known devastation. You see, Lamentations was written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire in 586 before Christ. If you think of any war, like in Ukraine, or any act of terrorism, like what happened on 9-11, or any natural disaster, like the bushfires in 2009, the conclusive and lasting literature and the, the deeper reflections about the event, about the event are not written on the day or in the moment when it happens. 
Reports in the moment of disaster tend to be factual and on the ground, covering in the gaps as, as much as possible about what's going on. Filled with large amounts of information as people are coming to terms with the tragedy. But it's in the months and the years after the event that you get sober writing and often the creation of works of art that's made to record and dignify those who perished or were heroes along with the symbols that were destroyed in those events. After all, some of the best reflections about the events that happened in Gallipoli in 1915 were written 100 years later. Um, we still need to be reminded of the Jewish Holocaust that happened some 80 years ago. Lamentations was written after the events of 586 BC, or BCE as we're meant to say now. As you would expect, it reflects all of the things that I've just been discussing. It's actually a series of five poems. It's in five chapters, but each are a poem. Poetry, of course, gets further and deeper than an a priori rational description of the events or what happened. Poetry conjures up all sorts of deeper uh, ability and artwork as it's painting a picture. There are similar styles of writing in the Psalms um, and in some of the other Old Testament books. And what we're going to bump into as we go through Lamentations are all sorts of literary devices used on the way through to, to explain the feelings and the loss and the devastation. You're going to have things like metaphor, saying one thing in terms of another thing to expand it. Um, there's diction, there's going to be careful choice of words to invoke particular connotations and reflections. For example, in Lamentations 2.20, the middle stanza, it says, should women eat their offspring and children they have cared for? It's a particularly gruesome image, but it gets the point across and forces us as the hearer to react and feel the depth of the situation. It's gruesome and it's intentionally doing that to get us to understand the emotion. There's wordplay. Uh, the writer is going to use words like friends and lovers which are such happy and light kind of terms, romantic terms, to then turn us over and, and like, as it were, slap us on the back of the head um, with the, the severity of the situation. You think it's going to soar and then bang, it comes around and hits you like with a plank of wood from behind. There's puns and rhymes and alliteration and uh, all sorts of alphabetic acrostics in the Hebrew language all the way through. In fact, each chapter, each chapter has... Um, the 22 characters of the Hebrew alphabet as acrostic patterns all the way through. But there's something else that's going on as we go through Lamentations that we should know about. The whole book, the whole five poems are like a funeral dirge. Now I know none of you in this room will ever have seen a James Bond film. Yeah, I can see the guilty one straight away. Um, you might have seen the film Live and Let Die. There's a scene there in New Orleans where there's this funeral dirge and they're walking through and it's filled with all sorts of voodoo imagery and, of course, there's an epic chase that develops out of it. It wouldn't be a James Bond film without that. But the whole, what happens is the whole city, the whole town there grinds to a halt as this funeral procession is walking through and traders shut the windows and the doors and everyone gives attention to the funeral procession that's moving through the town. That's the kind of image that's going on here in Lamentations. 
isn't that good to get a James Bond film linked to Lamentations? I thought that was really stretching it. The whole city of Jerusalem is lying in ruins. A large percentage of men and women and children have died. People are scared. People are scarred. Many leaders and loved ones have been transported to Babylon, where the psalmist will write in Psalm 137, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. These are the people back in Zion that they were remembering. This is the scene. The poplars where we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? This is the people on the other side of that scene. As you read Lamentations, you get the sense that you're um, reading something that's after the tragedy. Like when people are starting to peer out the windows, a bomb might have gone off in the street. And after the devastation, people are daring to look out and see what's going on around. Actually, Lamentations feels like that, but even worse and, and further along. When some sort of economic life is returning to Jerusalem and people are eking out a way to survive, even though they've lost everything and, and the Babylonians have come through and, 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 and just created such tragedy. I kind of, as I read it and listen to it, I imagine ripped tarpaulins over little structures where people are trying to hold a little market stall or a garage sale and sell what they've got to get something, to get some food on the table for whoever's left in the family. It's that sort of scene. All wandering through the midst of it with the temple in ruins. Where was God? Where is God? And that's an important reason why we should read and know Lamentations. Of course, aside from the fact that it's in the Bible. Because life does not work out how we always want it to. And this book, friends, gives you permission to name what has happened to you. All of it. Even in its painful depth and no matter how bad. And you can name it and provide it before God, openly, questioningly, mysteriously and honestly because that's what Lamentations does and it gives us permission to do the same thing in our moments of trauma and grief and devastation. So as we go through Lamentations, remember Jerusalem is lying there in ruins. The temple is just a pile of rubble. This is how Isaiah described what the scene would be like, or, or sorry, the scene. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. That's the scene. You'll remember the report that was given to Nehemiah in the, in the start of the book of Nehemiah. They said to me, those who survive the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. If you keep reading Nehemiah, you would see that the rest of the book is how they rebuilt the walls. So to create a defendable city again. And in the process, rebuilt the esteem and the theology of the people who lived inside it. But that's 70 years later. 
from this scene here in Lamentations. Lamentations is a, a scene here where things are going downhill and people are searching for hope in the reality of life after devastation. Judah had lost her international independence and been conquered by Babylon. All of Jerusalem's religious and political institutions have been changed forever. All the surrounding nations are mocking her. And of course, the devastating military loss, many people with the devastating military loss, um, lots of people were wounded and died, civilians and soldiers. The two biggest causes of death, actually, in this scene of what happened here, were through the vastly superior, brutal Babylonian army, but also through starvation. Because before the military campaign, the Babylonians starved the Jerusalemites before they laid siege to the city. And when they took over the city, they then deported anyone who had leadership or skills to Babylon in three successive deportations. So imagine the people who were left behind without leaders, without an economy, without a theology, without esteem, without anything. They're just there in rubble and ruin trying to face what is ahead. So for those left behind, everything was smashed, all the structures. Their leaders were dead or transported to Babylon and lots of loved ones were dead or raped or looted and brutalised. It's hard to fathom the city-wide psychological devastation that this book addresses from Melbourne, Australia. Now, there is one idea that you aren't going to hear from this book. You're not going to hear any messages that suggest that what you have been through personally in your life is insignificant compared to what the people of Jerusalem went through in 586 BC and afterwards. There's no comfort in that. And besides, Lamentations is far worse. But it's about what you go through when you're struggling for hope in the midst of devastation. And what you carry is important for you. And God through Lamentations, wants you to know that you can name it and own it before God. You can't miss the situation as you open the book as Holly read for us. The first lines of this first poem set the whole scene for what's coming. How deserted lies the city, so once full of people. How like a widow she is, who once was great amongst the nations. She who was queen amongst the provinces has now become a slave. That's the opening scene. The first half of this chapter of this poem that we're looking at in verses 1 through 11 is about Jerusalem, but personalised. The city, the fallen city, is called she. Verses, in verse 1, she is a widow or a queen who has become a slave. In verse 2, she whips bitter tears and has no friends or lovers to comfort her. In fact, her friends have become her enemies. Remember the poetic rhetoric that, that I said that all the different kinds of poetry that he used? Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies. That's the scene. In verse 3, she is a homeless nation with no place to rest, overcome in harsh labour and distress. In verse 4, no one comes to her appointed feasts. 
After all, there's probably little food. Her roads and gates are desolate. Her priests groan and her maidens grieve. It says the road to Zion, the roads to Zion mourn. That all directions when you approach this scene are ones that lead to mourning. For no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. On it goes. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. Her foes are now her masters. Her enemies are at ease. Her children have gone into exile. And it wasn't without warning. The prophets, and especially Isaiah and Amos and Hosea, had told Israel she needed to change her ways, that this was coming. But she did not listen. She kept on sinning and behaving the way she was. She walked away from the Lord and the ways of the Lord. And she walked into the hands of her destructive enemies. And this message continues in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 11. It's terrible by being held there. But by being held there, we start to grasp the severity of the situation and the pain and the trauma of these weak people left behind in the ruins and the rubble, forced to watch their smashed temple every day as a reminder of their physical and spiritual devastation. And then there's a change in verse 12, halfway through this poem. From that point on, this poem then turns as the devastated city speaks back. In the first half, Jerusalem is she, and it's describing it. In the second half, she tells us how she feels. Jerusalem now speaks in the first person and describes her anguish. Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, he sent it into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. On it goes verse 12 through to 22. And this is where the poem goes to another level because unlike the harrowing first 11 verses, we're now drawn into the first person reality of what's going on here, what, what it feels like and how Jerusalem responds. We find ourselves as a reader identifying with the speaker and able to give to God our own pain and trauma and experience like Jerusalem is doing here. But this, friends, is the message of Lamentations and therefore the whole Bible to us, that this is, this is an ancient book, but it's not just a book. It's, this is a book, the Bible, that has been burned and confiscated and banned, and yet it still continues to survive. It's scorned and it's ridiculed by the elites and intellectuals, but it still stands and it will outlive whatever they write. This is not a book we learn from Lamentations, that this is not a book for wimps or cowards. This is a book that faces life in all of its reality square on. It describes in detail things like genocide and atrocity and the human condition. It demolishes futile thoughts and simplistic philosophy because this is the truth the word of God, and it will outlast anything that we humans choose to create. It was once said that 
A faith can't be tested, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Lamentations chapter 1 thrusts us into the scene of a fallen Jerusalem. We're attentive now to what's coming in the next four chapters. This is a tour for adults and people looking for hope. We're now in the city and we're ready to hear from her people as we open this in the coming weeks. J.I. Packer said these words in his wonderful little book, Knowing God. We should not therefore be too taken aback when unexpected and unsettling and discouraging things happen to us now. What do they mean? Why simply that God in his wisdom means to make something of us which we have not attained yet and is dealing with us accordingly. It is often the case, as all the saints know, that fellowship with the Father and the Son is most vivid and sweet and Christian joy the greatest when the cross is the heaviest. Death, resurrection. Resurrection can only come after death and that is the story of the Christian faith. It seems fitting here as we've been working our way through a poem in the Bible to end with a poem. Sure, this is a simple poem, but I trust it sets us up for what we've been touring through today, but also for what's coming in the coming four weeks. It's called Lord of the Compost Heap by Joseph Bailey. Lord of the Compost Heap, you take garbage and turn it into soil, good soil, for seeds to root and grow, with wildest increase, flowers to bloom with brilliant beauty. Take all the garbage of my life, Lord of the compost heap. Turn it into soil, good soil. And then plant seeds to bring forth fruit and beauty in profusion. That's the message that we're going to be opening up in Lamentations. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that this book of Lamentations, filled with ancient wisdom of a traumatised people, who were searching for you and wondering where you were in the midst of their devastation, was able to find its way into the canon that is the Holy Bible for us here in Melbourne in 2023 to be helped and encouraged. I pray, Lord, for each of us online and in this room as we hold this text against our own life experience, against dashed hopes, against dreams that haven't happened, with loved ones who we've lost, with pain, with devastation, with all sorts of human experience. I pray, Lord, pastorally, as we go through this book, that we would realise that nothing is too great for you. It breaks your heart and you're there for us, but nothing is too great for you. And you are the God that brings resurrection after death. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just, a, just a pastoral word as, we, uh, as, as I give it back to Holly. Um, as we go through this, this may open some pastoral wounds. And I really encourage you to open up and talk to someone about it. If something is before you and, and, and an issue in your life from your past or your present is there, as pastors, we're here 
love to have coffee or sit down in my room and talk with you. There's elders, you have friends, there are counsellors that you might access, uh, you have your own resources as well. Please don't be alone in what is being opened up before you. Um, this is maybe God's season to open it up for you. God bless you. Thank you, Andrew.